specification of our society has to do with wider use of diuretics and uh, and renal disease um, and it may have something to do with dietary changes as, as well so this is a sort of epidemiologic issue that has its manifestations with downstream associations with gout there's an interesting study that came out this that, this this uh, last week which was a survey of dentists now you know why bother might be one question but another question is what did they find and not surprisingly is that dentists are generally very very afraid of bisphosphonates the idea of jaw claudication uh, sorry jaw uh, osteonecrosis osteonecrosis of the jaw is a major buzz in their brains and at their meetings and when this survey of like almost 500 dentists showed that 63 percent of them ask about whether patients take bisphosphonates, that of the ones that are on bisphosphonates, over 85% are reluctant to do any kind of dental surgery. Uh, and again, the numbers are sort of staggering here about the fear. The problem is that there's a lack of education amongst the, I think, dentists and amongst maybe all physicians about the absolute risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is probably closer to one in 1,000 than anything. And the bottom line is, even though the rates are there and they might be up in some people, the question is, does the patient need the drug and would the benefits of the drug be more important than the potential minuscule risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw or for that matter, atypical femoral fractures? But again, it means that rheumatologists are going to have to have a careful conversation and communication with their patients on bisphosphonates as they go to the dentist. You might even think about drawing up a letter ahead of time, outlining the risks, um, taking some of the content off of room now. Hey, I might even write that up for you so that you can give that to your dentist something to do. There's an interesting study that appeared in New England Journal today on oral anticoagulation therapy. As you know, patients undergoing uh, hip replacement or knee replacement uh, often will go on uh, Coumadin or other anticoagulants uh, prophylactically for the first month, uh, right after surgery and for the first month. Um, this particular study looked at a more aggressive approach using Xarelto, also called, sorry, Revoroxaran, I, I don't even know how to say it, but it's a Zarelto, sorry, that's the, the trade name. And they, what they did in the study was they took almost 3,000 patients who were randomized to receive one or two therapies. Everybody right after their hip replacement or knee replacement received five days of Zarelto at the standard dose, 10 milligrams a day in an oral pill. But after the fifth day, they then either randomized patients to a week or a month of aspirin or a week or a month of um, Zarelto, and they basically showed with their primary endpoint being three months later, um, the rate of DVTs and PEs was very, very low in patients who were continued on aspirin or on Zarelto. And the rate was about seven per 1,000 patients. Um, so very, very low rate. Uh, about half that number actually had significant bleeding in the three-month follow-up period. So it seems that this might be an alternative regimen, easier regimen, doesn't require PT monitoring, et cetera, and it might even be shorter in the long run for patients who are undergoing hip and knee replacement. A very interesting report appeared this week, uh, or this month, in Annals of Rheumatic Disease by Dr. David Pazetsky, Peter Lipsky, and a few others, where they actually looked at 103 patients who had established lupus, and they looked at the performance characteristics of the ANA test. Specifically, they looked at three different kits for ANAs. They did another one that was an ELISA, another one that was, I can't remember the, the, the actual assay. They did a total of five different kits. And the bottom line, in these, in these patients who had very well-established lupus, that's, uh, in the three kits, they found five to 22% 
who were ANA negative on one-time testing. Using the other assays, they found 11 to 14% who were ANA negative, thereby questioning the, why do we see ANA negativity in people with well-established disease? Do patients lose their ANA positivity over time? We know that happens in patients who, for instance, go into renal failure. We know that happens sometimes in patients who get very old. Um, we know that happens when they really don't have lupus. The question is, do these patients really have lupus and what does it mean? Sterling West wrote in and said, what's the deal? Will these patients, be, when they were first diagnosed, were they ANA positive? David Pazetsky wrote back and that's, he says that's part of their ongoing study to find out what is the natural history of ANA positivity in a patient with lupus and what does it mean? Because one of the early studies of belimumab actually was sort of disqualified or, or critiqued because a high percentage of patients, a higher than expected percentage of patients, were ANA negative at entry, even though they were entered into the study by lupus experts. So this is sort of a very controversial area. I still assert you shouldn't be making the diagnosis of lupus without an ANA. But I think that the natural history of the ANA in someone who has established disease remains to be determined, and we need more research on this. It makes for a nice fellow project, if you ask me. There's another interesting study that appeared this week in Annals of Internal Medicine, the HERO study. This is hydroxychloroquine given to patients with hand osteoarthritis. They studied a, a, a large number of patients uh, and basically showed, again, hydroxychloroquine does not work in hand OA. These were not erosive. Uh, OAs, these were just OA of the hand without erosive characteristics. Um, and there's a, we got a slew of studies that don't work in hand OA. Given the frequency of OA, 27 million Americans compared to 8.3 with gout, compared to 1.3 with RA, why is there no more aggressive therapies? Why is there no more aggressive research being done in hand OA? It's desperately needed. You know what my regimen is for hand OA? Tylenol, tape them up and maybe 2.5 milligrams of prednisone. I don't have anything else that works as well. Nonsteroidal is fine, but there's no role for methotrexate or biologics or plaquenil in these patients. It's, a, it's very disappointing. There's an interesting report about uh, the pediatric population uh, treated with TNF inhibitors. This is a nice study from Jeff Curtis and colleagues. It was a claims-based study where they actually looked at uh, patients with JIA and juvenile uh, inflammatory bowel disease and juvenile plaque psoriasis, and they compared 15,000 pediatric patients on a TNF inhibitor, first-time TNF inhibitor use, to over 74,000 patients who were not on a TNF inhibitor with those same diagnoses. In the end, they saw that the risk of malignancy had an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.5, but it crossed one from with a confidence interval of 0.8 to 2.85, suggesting that there is no significant risk of malignancy. This is a big issue because you know, if you read about malignancy and TNF inhibitors in the package inserts, it pretty much says that these tumors occur in uh, adults with rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory diseases. It's a little bit more indictful when it comes to pediatric population because it's hard to assess that population. And this data goes a long way towards maybe giving us another step of confidence in that by giving a TNF inhibitor, you're probably not increasing the child's risk for a neoplasm. And that includes all neoplasms, not just lymphoma. Our last report actually is a press release from Celgene about their next study in patients with Bichette's. So Primalast has originally been studied in a, I think it was a 150 patient trial shown to be very effective. Uh, and now they have a follow-up study. This is called the RELIEF study. Uh, it's 207 patients who randomized to receive a Primalast or placebo uh, for their Bichette syndrome and their primary endpoints were met. Uh, there was a reduction in the total number of air, uh, oral ulcers in oral ulcer pain 
and in a Bichette's disease activity score, suggesting this is going to be an effective therapy. I like this drug uh, in, in Bichette's. I think it, by its effects on neutrophils, um, probably has going to, is going to have an effect in small vessel vasculitis, which is what Bichette's is. And I think it'll be interesting to see where a primalast gets developed once it gets approval for um, Bichette's. The company in, intends to submit its application to the FDA for Bichette's after they finish up the analysis and probably report this at a major meeting, likely, I would assume, at ULAR. Uh, so second half of this year, this might get submitted to the FDA. So look for this probably be six months later. So it would be early 2019 before it would become FDA approved in patients with Bichette's. That's it for this week on RoomNow.com. Go to the website. You can find the links for these articles and read more about them. Be sure to listen to us on, on not just on the video, but also on our podcast. You can get us on iTunes. You can listen to us in the car on iTunes or on Stitcher if you have an Android phone. Uh, it works well with uh, Apple CarPlay and also Android Auto. That's what I've been listening. I like to listen to myself. It's kind of sad, but it's, it's lonely over here in Dallas uh, at Room Now Central. Anyway, tune in more for more true confessions at roomnow.com. Goodbye.